Hey, to the point listeners, this is live. The ACA conference, the Q&A panel I had uh, moderated with uh, Ken Goodrich, Chris Hoffman, uh, Lee Rosenberg, Ryan Kletz, and Brian Bovio. We covered a lot of really good information, took a lot of great questions from the audience that these guys answered and crushed. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This is To The Point. A Rhino Experience. Voted one of the top home services marketing and operations podcasts. Cutting through the bullshit and getting to the point. Good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? I'm super excited. I love being able to moderate panels like this. It's a lot of fun. And we got a great group of panelists, too. Like Sarah said, if you have questions that you want to submit, um, I have it on the app right here, so I'm not texting anybody. I'm taking a look at your questions that you're submitting. I will moderate them and ask them as needed. I always get some joker in here that's going to put something in here to try and make me laugh, so we'll see which one of you it's going to be. But we have a great group of panelists. I want to bring them up. Um, again, this is, there's been a lot of uh, M&A talk. There's been a lot of uh, alternatives to what does that look like to scale your business. This particular panel is willing to help answer any questions that you have, whether it's M&A related, business related, doesn't matter. So this is your chance to kind of ask these questions whenever you want. So there's a bunch of questions already in here, which is great. So thank you to the, those of you that submitted these, and thank you for choosing to be here. So I'm going to go ahead and bring up our panelists one by one. Uh, boys, come on up. Brian, Brian Bovio, come on up, buddy. I tell you what, let's just give them a round of applause as they come up. Brian, hey, Brian. Welcome, buddy. Hey, so far, so good. Ryan Kletz, you guys met him. Ryan, come on up. What are we supposed to do? Mr. Ken Goodrich, Kenny KG. Somebody called you Cristiano earlier, but you clearly don't look like me. You're much better looking than me. Chris, Chris Hoffman, come on up, Chris Hoffman. I think you're better looking, man. Where do you want me? Say. And then the 2021 ACA Presidential Contractor of the Year, Mr. Lee Rosenberg. Lee, come on up. You guys ready to do this? Let's do it. Yep. Okay, we're going to see who gets out of line up here, too. I have a good <laughs> idea who, who it's going to be. <laughs> hey, can I... Can I of course you can. It's Ken Goodrich. Can I iPhone, iPhone my wife and show them on stage? Because she thinks that this is just like a boys' club. We all come out here and drink with the boys. But sure, you can do, do whatever you want. Ken, this is your show, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I, we already have a, quite a few questions in here. And again, if you're uh, like to Sarah's point, if you hit the like button, it bumps them to all the most important questions that you guys see think is most important to the top, and I'll read from the top down. So first and foremost, we have. Uh, let's see. What, and, and I'll tell you what, if you want to respond, just jump in and respond, okay? And then we'll see who defers to who. What if two jump in at the same time? Fight for it. Yeah, we yes. Physically fight for it. Cage yeah, match. that's how it's going to go. Cage match. Yes. Okay, first question is, let's see. What can a small contractor do to recruit new talent? Wish. Small contractor wish. <laughs> Wishing isn't the best strategy, but it's an strategy. Maybe pray. I'll take that. Surely. We have found out the best way to build is to build your own. And many years ago, we started a build the tech program. We've built a training lab, and we get these young students. I say young, it's, they're not all that young, 
coming out of the trade schools. And we're looking for attitude, train for aptitude, and they, they come with no bad habits, and it's been very successful. We've been doing that for probably 10 years. It's not easy, it's not inexpensive, but it works. They, they become, they know our culture. Got it. And let, let me jump in on what Lee had to say here, and, and uh, I think he's absolutely right. And so, you know, we have established what we call the Gettle Academy, which is, is more of a finishing school, if you will. We get the guys out of a, you know, the, the heavy tech side of the uh, education, right out they come out of school, and then we finish them with our process, our culture, our systems, and they run a program through that before we ever put them out. And I will say this, this is something that I, that I have been doing for 30 years is, and I tell everybody I can, I tell my, uh, my key people the same, is I make sure that I talk to every single air conditioning technician and plumbing and plumber and installer that I ever see wherever I'm at. I talk to them, I engage with them, I get their card, and I communicate with them, and I build this network. And, and, and uh, I think it's a vital part. It's a vital part of your business even before, you know, we had tech shortages, but right now it's very important that you are known and connected and have an open door for every guy in the trade to come your way. Similar to the ABC, always be closing, always be recruiting. Um, and I know that Tech Academy thing might sound you know, grand to, yeah. You know, somebody said for a small company, and I don't think it changes. Maybe the scale changes, but you can still bring in one person and train them one-on-one -on -one for however long you need them. So if you need two people, you can bring one in. You just took care of 50% of your need. Right, like that, but as Ken was saying, always be recruiting, and it doesn't have to be an active, you know, uh, over-the-top push. It is just uh, that networking, and this day and age with social media and all the, the groups that are available to people, uh, you never know what you might see, so just always be recruiting. And then and one, one other thing. At an ACA convention, I don't know, six, eight years ago, Michael Gerber, uh, the author of The E-Myth, was here, and uh, the one thing he stuck with me uh, that he said at that convention is your business is a school for your employees. Start there. Your business is a school for your employees. You know, you think about McDonald's. You don't get to work at McDonald's unless you go through their training process, right? They don't just take Sally's, uh, a fry cook from Sally's slop and hash and say, make me a Big Mac now, like we do. We hire a guy from, from this company and say, now install an air conditioner, right? Your business is a school for your employees. Absolutely. As the small, smaller contractor up here, we do the exact same thing. I mean, you just have the home build talent at this point, and the culture fit is a big point. You find someone that fits your culture, and then you can train them on the technical side. Yeah, and I think what I noticed a lot from just from COVID in general was that the trades really stepped up to help one another, and mm -hmm. um, a lot of shop tours going on. So I would encourage you if you're looking like to get into the whole tech training thing, you got to have somebody dedicated to that. To really, I think, kick it off. So, but I would imagine any of these guys would be happy with you to come by and check out their shop and talk to them in more detail about it. Why is that watch so thick? It's like a, is that secret decoder thing or what's going on there? <laughs> are you jealous? Okay, moving on before Ken derails us anymore. Uh, what are some of the best things you've done to increase maintenance agreements? Who wants to tackle that first? I'll jump in on that one. We actually just did a, uh, 
unique campaign uh, text messaging. Um, it's amazing, people do not respond to email anymore, people do not answer the phone call. We just did a text campaign and uh, it, it worked out really well. So you text to your existing customers? Is that what that existing was? Existing customers, yeah. Okay. We had uh, uh, used to have the, the good, better, best, the, the multiple different tiers of plans several years back. And we used the addition uh, of new lines of business, plumbing, electrical, uh, to really rethink how we designed the plans and what the value proposition was to the customer. So we eliminated the good, better, best. We simplified down into a single plan, a home protection plan, and we tried to build a lot of value in that plan across all the different trades uh, that we can offer. And we made it an all-inclusive plan. Filters are included. Humidifier pads are included. And by making it simple and one plan and something that every trade in our business perceived as a value to their trade, uh, we now have electricians, plumbers, you name it, selling HVAC maintenance plans. Uh, and we have plumbers that'll pull, while they're down there working on the water heater, they'll pull the air filter, and it looks like a, a cat died in there. Uh, they're talking about the HPP. Uh, so it's really neat to see across trades that, that dialogue and that success. I'll say that the, uh, you know, how do you get maintenance plans? We gave up years ago relying on the technicians to sell maintenance plans. <laughs> and the maintenance plans are sold at the time that, that you engage with them on the, on the phone. Mm -hmm. They're sold before we do our first truck roll. That's when you sell your plans. You get the right script and you got the right team together, you know, you, you can put thousands every month together. That's where we sell most of ours as well. Yeah. And just as contradictory, 100% of ours come from the field. So, I mean, there's different ways to skin right. the cat. It, it's knowing your numbers. We know exactly what percentages we're expected to convert, um, accountability, et cetera. But it's value. Uh, whoever, whether it's your client care rep, whether it's your comfort advisor, whether it's your technician, they have to see the value in whatever they're presenting. So my previous life, I was with Enterprise Rent-A-Car, and if you've ever rented a car, they try and get you with what? Insurance. Insurance. <laughs> it's not insurance, it's called protection. They whatever. drill that in your head. But the people who had success honestly and truly believed in it, same with your comfort clubs, uh, your, your maintenance agreements. If, you, if your tech, your comfort, you know, your client care rep, whoever sees the value, it's a lot easier for them to communicate. Hey, what was the conversion metric uh, at, at Enterprise for insurance? What was the expectation? 10%. That's all? At the airport, it was even lower. Wow. That was in a city office. 10%, uh, 14% in some locations, but where I was, Virginia Beach, 10%. Wow. Yeah, I'm going to throw in, uh, we're talking residential service agreements, but our business is um, light commercial, folded in. We do about... Uh, I'd say about 40% of our revenue is on the light commercial, no construction on either side. But we have actually two gentlemen who are out selling commercial service agreements. That is tremendous revenue of you know, recurring nature. It's profitable and it drives our commercial replacement piece. Uh, we, and then on the residential side, it's pretty much what we're hearing here. A lot of it's sold through the office. Got it. Thanks, gentlemen. Okay, next question is, what are you doing to help with employee retention? Kind of important. I bet you I can guess on something that you do, just from what you said a minute ago, is I think that I'm a big, anybody that knows me knows that like giving back is huge to me. It's what we do. Um, I think that you can actually build a strong culture by going and doing things like that, giving back together, something that doesn't actually benefit the business directly, like transactionally. 
but it does like for the, you know, the happier the employees are, the better, you know, the more they, the harder they want to work for the business, they want to stay for the company. But I'm assuming that's a good thing that you guys use for employer retention. Yeah, you know, if you look at any um, new study on right, why teammates stay on your team, right, we all think it's money and money typically falls somewhere in that four to seven ranked out of a top 10 list. Uh, money is not that driving factor, though it is still important to people. So one of the things that uh, Chris was talking about was uh, giving back. Uh, we have we started an initiative uh, 2012, 13, uh, called One Hour Cares, and it was a way to give back to the little guys and girls, as we talk, talk about in the community. Instead of giving to the big national companies, uh, Susan G. Coleman, One Hour, One Hour Cares focuses on locally based 503Cs, and it is a way our team goes to these events, they participate in them. Um, we encourage participation in their events or to volunteer. So, yeah, I mean, people feeling engaged with their company is a retention tool all by itself. Sure. I think, too, you know, since we started our first company some decades ago, we have never laid off an employee for lack of work, ever. Ever? And I think part of that is due to the fact that we do the residential and commercial space. But it's about communication, communication with your team, and treat them like family. Now, I know there's obviously companies up here and, and out in the audience that have hundreds of employees. We are just under 50. But we, we know the birthdays, we, we compliment them, and, um, and they know too that their paycheck is solid. There's a lot of companies running out there that, that are really have no working capital, nor do they know what that term means. I would add, Chris, we had, uh, pre-pandemic, we had a 94% retention rate on a trailing coma basis. We fall into 88. But I would, I would say uh, one of the biggest challenges we've had with ensuring that consistency and culture and employee experience in our business was when we have new leaders, new field managers, most of our team members, their experience of Hoffman Brothers, 80% of it is through that manager. And so we're asking ourselves, how are we equipping that manager with the leadership skills, competencies, attitudes uh, that we value as an organization so that the employee experience throughout our business across hundreds of team members is the same? Uh, and so we've gotten very intentional around how we talk about leadership, how we build leadership capabilities across our different managers, uh, because I think that's the reason people will want to stay, because they work for somebody that, that values them and appreciates them and can help yeah, them grow. Sure. Sure. I jump in too. Uh, it's how you treat your team members and how you treat your customers. Uh, we actually just did an mar internal marketing study, and one of the things that rose to the top from our, our teammates uh, did a survey with is we don't lie. And that was something that the team was really proud of, and uh, you know we do have a good retention rate, but it's we don't lie to the customer. Um, we treat, we try to take care of the customer, and we take care of our teammates. Anybody else? Well, I'll throw out a couple suggestions. If you guys are cool with that, are you okay with that, Ken? If I throw out some suggestions, lay it on me. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so um, just something that's you know like uh, it can be monotonous doing the same thing every single day. So what we had done was we have 140. Um, employees so we have good time committee basically every quarter you you know five four or five people can be part of the good time committee and they come up with fun things to do in the office whether it's potlucks or you're gonna go do something afterwards or whatever it is but it kind of gets them engaged and they rotate um, they have fun with their peers and they start to create different things that they can you know that they can do inside the office so that was something that was good and it's all volunteer so like they can't complain because they're the ones that volunteered for the good time committee <laughs> So that's something that another something idea. that you can do. Uh, and I'll just say this: so 
So retaining people is, uh, has to do with the subject of management, managing people. And, uh, you know, from my journey in the space where I started out as a technician, and, you know, you go through the logical evolution like most of us do, you don't really, you know, it's, you learn how to manage people by trial and error. And management is a skill, no different than being a technician or installer, you know, something in the trade, it's a skill. It has to be learned, it has to be practiced. And so, years ago, we determined that we were ill-equipped to manage people, and therefore our retention rate was not where we wanted it to be, so we, we went out and found a group in uh, Southern California called MAP, Management Action Programs, and it's, it's, our, it's how we train our tech, technical people as they move up into the ranks, how to manage people and you know how to stay out in front of them and make sure they understand what their role and responsibilities are and how to keep them close and retain them in the business. And, and exactly to your point, in, to the rank and file, the culture of the company is determined by their direct supervisor. So that one spot right there is the most important spot for you to put your time and energy in training these people to manage because that is the frame of reference for your field people of what the company really stands for. Chris, could I add one more thing that I think has become really important on this topic? Because I feel like there used to be the saying, like, leave your problems at the door. In, in the Marine Corps, we had a, a, a conversation around mission, mission readiness and what that meant. It meant someone was ready and trained and equipped to do the mission that we're going to do when we go forward deploy, but it also means things on the home front are in good shape and good order so that they can have their focus and attention dedicated on the mission abroad. Uh, and we as businesses, we need to, I think, change the way we think about uh, how we support and impact our team members. The old adage, leave your problems at the door, check them at the door, show up, that's not my problem, that's gone. And, and I mean, I, I can give you examples. Uh, I've paid for folks uh, substance abuse rehab, I've had folks who had unexpected injuries, didn't have short-term disability, I stepped in and paid them during the recovery periods. These types of, of things you can do to really expand the way that you're treating people and caring for people, uh, that pays dividends tenfold for years. Uh, and I think taking that approach of owning the mission readiness of all of your people, both at work and outside of work, is critical. Yeah, I like that. And that's coming from a place for you of you genuinely care about making sure that everybody is taken care of. You kind of have that, like, so that's just who you, that's who you are by nature, so that comes out. Like, it's not to fake that. Um, I think that people want to be led by uh, influence, not intimidation, is another thing. You know, people want to feel cared about in the business. Um, and the big, sometimes the bigger it gets, the harder it is to, to connect with everyone. But it's so important, even the simplest, you're doing a great job, like the simplest things can, can carry a lot of weight to it. Yeah. Anybody else? Everybody good? Okay, moving on. What are your thoughts on hiring leadership from outside of the industry? I'll speak to that. Leaders are leaders. People are people. It doesn't matter where they come from. Um, we're all for it. We're not opposed to within the industry, but good people are good people. Uh, good leaders, uh, they are so hard to find. So if you find a, um, you know, to steal Chris's words, mission-ready leader, take them. Hey, I, I don't really see what, what the question is. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Well, here, here's part of my management team. There's a former rock star. <laughs> a uh, videographer, a private equity guy, a uh, 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 national sales manager for a paper company, and an F-16 pilot. My management team right there. So 
I'm good with hiring. So you're opposed, you're the... opposed to it. That's what I'm hearing. You're opposed to it. I think it can also bring uh, a different outlook, you know, to get somebody who who is thinking outside the box, who's not been in the industry so long, maybe some fresh ideas and things like that. I know you and I've had conversations, we had conversations about that. So, Listen, I think it's very important that you start looking for the management team. To, to Look, it's called the Peter Principle. If you promote from within, the organization will rise, rise to the level of its incompetency because you're not bringing in uh, new experiences into the organization, new skills into the organization. So, you know, having a company that promotes only from within will have a stall. And so it's important that you go out and look for new talent with new skills. Um, I, I will say that I've had lots of luck going out and getting, you know, higher educated people that's, that can really dig into the number side of the business and drive businesses through metrics, things like that. People who have better management experience. I've had great luck, luck looking outside of the industry into like the elevator industry, where you know elevator industry is kind of similar, right? It has a service element, it has a uh, skilled labor element, it has a uh, equipment sale element, and those guys understand how to run some of the stuff that we do every single day. So um, I think it's very important that you start bringing some talent from outside and letting them influence the, the, your organization and take the business play to a higher level. Were you just sitting around and thought, you know what, an elevator technician sounds like a great... <laughs> you know, I met the guy, I, I met a guy, well, he was a VP, but uh, I met him at a barbecue, and, and uh, he said that he was retiring from Otis Elevator, career guy, and he said that he was going to go out and look for a president's job, he was retiring, I said, you don't want to do that, president's job. You need to be in HVAC. That's where all the fun is. And I, anyway, I convinced him, and he was like, he was a plug-and-play guy, and he took our whole enterprise up to a whole nother level because he just had a skill set that we weren't accustomed to. And you don't just promote the best like technician or installer. Like, not all great players are great coaches, right? But they do. There is a certain. There is a certain uh, like skill set that I think a leader has. Do you have one of the questions is which leadership skills do you find are the most important? I think this kind of plays right into that. So, if you were going to potentially hire internally or even externally from the industry, like what regardless, what is that skill set that a good leader possesses? The one that yells the most. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, you know, obviously, you know. Really, the, just the, the fundamentals of management skills, right? They're, they know how to manage and talk to people and influence people. You know, we have different management. You know, we have great managers who run great, great businesses, but their communication skills are, you know, need some work, right? And, and, the, and then we have other players who are not as tight on the numbers, but their, their communication skills are better, so they have better retention. And, you know, it's just a, lots of levers that you have to pull in that equation. Anybody else chime in on that? Good stuff. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, now you also use you you I know Ken you believe in you you mentioned MAP because we sent we sent our leadership to MAP as well for constant training. Um, that's something that's also important is your leadership doesn't just get to be a leader and it stops and they're just leading people. They're they're having to get, still get leadership too to kind of continue to grow because once they hit the ceiling, what else are you doing, right? So that's something that's important to continue doing, and MAP was a good organization. Well, in that particular case, you know, we have a MAP facilitator that comes into every one of our branches monthly, and we go through a process. But it's really just to 
practice drill, rehearse, the art of management, right? And then quarterly for the executive team. I mean, anybody, if anybody's ever heard of uh, the book Traction or, or heard the EOS platform, that's something good you can get into with the leadership team. I would recommend getting a facilitator for that as well. I think it works a little bit better. Um, but that's just another tool you can use, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> um, all right, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. This next question is around marketing. What are the best lead generation options that you guys have experienced to help grow the add-on replacement and service business? What are the best lead generation options to help grow add-on replacement and service business? SmartAC.com, SmartAC.com. If you haven't heard of it, you better find out. If you haven't implemented it, you better check it out. You have to get started doing something. 2024 is going to be an absolute battlefield. What are you doing differently than your competitors? You need to make sure that your memberships are sticky. SmartAC.com does that. Lifetime warranty, insurance savings, filter discounts, 24-7 monitoring that lets you know about problems before the homeowner might even know about the problem. Live tech chat, service providers, all of this with smartac.com. You've got to check it out now. Hmm. Secret. <laughs> it's a combination. <laughs> I have all the answers, but I'm going to let you guys answer those questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the new, the, you know, I don't know if this is new, but I, I think that our, our trade has really started to see the benefits of really working on your brand. So you build a brand and a brand story that can resonate with your communities and connect you with, with, with communities faster. And so, you know, there's all kinds of lead generation methodologies. So digital is the most part of, uh, popular one today, right? But we have seen such a, a better lift in everything we do when we focused on building our brand and our brand story and making sure that the communities that we serve understand that story and who we are and what we're about first. Then when you go to lead gen through a digital means or direct mail or outbound dialing or, 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 they, they feel like they have a connection and they, and they know you. And so the building of the brand to me is the most important element of lead gen. Certainly helps with the conversions, which is like the key ingredient to all this stuff really working is getting people to actually call you to do business. I would say marketing to your existing, existing customer base. Nobody cares about us, we all care about us, but nobody really cares about us. Um, I recently merged two companies, Bovio and Rabino, and we just did all these marketing surveys, building the new brand, um, making the brand story to your point, Ken, and 40 year Bovio customers signed uh, on the, they filled out the questionnaire and said that they were originally a Rubino customer. It's just an Italian that fixes heaters, I don't really care. Um, <laughs> and 40 year Rubino customers said, no, nah, they were with Bovio. And then we found a bunch of people that used both of us because they just didn't even know there was a difference to begin with. <laughs> um, but, you know, building that story to your point and then marketing your services to your existing customers, we found during this marketing study that We've both done plumbing for 10 plus years and most of our customer base had no idea. We told them a hundred times, but they still had no idea that we did plumbing. We just, they just thought we did air conditioning or they would use Rubino for plumbing and Bovio for heating and somebody else for air conditioning. So, you know, just keeping that, build that story and, you know, let your existing customers, you know, know about what you have going on. 
I'll add on to that too. I think um, this time of year, we're in St. Louis, the biggest part of our business is in St. Louis. Uh, the weather outside is not, not generating a lot of demand. Uh, it's one, cold. <laughs> but not cold enough uh, and not hot enough. But I think one thing you can do that we have not done well historically, but we're really working on now is, is updating the equipment history. We're all in all these customers' homes every day. And even our, our home protection plan, our maintenance club members, ensuring that their equipment information is always accurate so that when you're using things like the daily call board and you're filling, using your capacity management tools, I'm going into tomorrow, I'm going I'm to do 100 maintenances tomorrow, and I'm going to make sure that 40 of them are 15-plus-year-old systems or 40 of them are 10-plus-year-old systems. And I can do that because I'm confident in the equipment history and the information I'm capturing every day when we're running these service calls. So I think making sure that you're being smart about the information you're collecting and how you use that information uh, in connection with your, your capacity management tools like the daily call board or whatever, whatever that is in your business, right. that can really help with lead generation in the shoulder seasons. And by the way, I'll say the last thing. You know, one technique that we've used for many, many years that, have built, that has been a key build of our businesses is we look for small, you know, small companies that want to retire or that go under for some, some reason and grabbing their phone number and database is extremely valuable. And it's the least expensive, most effective lead generation that you can do. Excuse me, my friend. But, you know, that, that right there is just, if, and, and kind of like what I talked about, you know, getting to know all the technicians and, and installers and plumbers I see is, you know, stay in contact with your industry. I've, I've really tried to make sure that I, that I'm in the middle of the industry and I'm, we're, we're trading experiences with each other to help each other improve, but when those guys are ready to, to retire or they want to shut down or life happens, you're there to, to grab that. And, and that's been a big builder over the years for our business is grabbing these databases or smaller companies that are, that are uh, winding down. Anybody else? Well, I will chime in because I have to. Uh, I just to... agree with, with all of this, especially with Chad, about building the brand and referrals. Uh, years ago, when we sold the first company, the first initiative was change the names. What a bust that was. But uh, yeah, I mean, it takes time, but people know us. Got it. Just from branding. Well, I know, Chris, you do a great job. Uh, in St. Louis, I mean, when you when I look at, if anybody sat through my breakout yesterday, I put up who was kind of the, the man, if you will, or the woman, and uh, St. Louis and, and Hoffman really took the cake on really all all the rankings, so it certainly has to be impactful. Um, I don't think you're using called tracking numbers, though, right? Mm -hmm. Completely against that, by the way. <laughs> I'm an analytical nerd. I like numbers. I want to see exactly what's coming from that. But it's a great way to build the add-on replacement and service business. Obviously, like you can't get away from digital marketing. You just got to find the right partner that actually understands one your industry and two how your the homeowners think. So essentially, we got to be psychologists. We have to understand how to answer the questions and the objections that we know they're going to ask before they even ask them to get them to call you in the first place. How long have you been a partner of ours, Lee? Eight oh, years, God. seven years? Probably eight like years. I can tell you the tracking numbers are just critical. Yeah. Because we are able to measure. We have so many KPIs in our business that we look at every week, but uh, the tracking numbers, you know, we, we really drill down on what's per, what it is, cost per lead and everything. Yeah, I think that um, a lot of the, um, for anybody who's listened to the podcast enough, you know, in regards to private equity, I've been involved in a ton of it uh, from a lot of different angles, um, but it always comes back to one thing when somebody's asking me a question. It is, um, 
is there a predictable model for digital marketing? And the answer is, yeah, it is predictable. Not spot on, but it's predictable enough. You can start to figure out what should a cost per lead be, um, what should an average uh, conversion rate be on these things. Um, there are predictable things that you can use to measure the business. So I'm a big fan of measure it. There's nothing you can't measure today <laughs> that you don't just use a call tracking number and a human being to listen to that phone call to understand where did it come from, what's the booking rate on it, What's the average close rate on it? What's the average ticket on these things? And if you have those things, you start to understand who's doing what, which channel's performing what, in which location. Again, all from a call tracking number and a human being listening to it, you can start to create a predictable model for your business. So that's something that I know that we've had lots of discussions about is, you know, as you're scaling the business, you're doing acquisitions and things like that, is it what can we potentially do in this market? It's just going back and using those numbers. To get to that, I get that takes a lot of time to listen to those calls. I think we're listening to roughly 500 and a half, you know, half a million hours every month of phone calls for contractors, all to understand what was spent to get that lead and how was the lead handled, what was the quality of it, and how did it impact the business. If I know those numbers every single month, you can start to predictably move the business forward in the add-on replacement and service space. It's a fact. Um, okay, so. What are, some key, what are some key processes to scale my business? What are some key processes to scale my business? I mean, you have to have the foundation, first of all. I mean, you, it's absolutely catastrophic if you try and scale without having whatever foundation you think you need in place. Um, when you say foundation, like, what, do you, what do you mean? Like some I think set it's a, vital KPIs that you're tracking. To I think it's a very vague term. I mean, it's yeah. In each location, I mean, for us, first of all, you have to have our I'll say our main office in place. If we tried to go out and expand and had you know a mess in our own house, all you're doing is complicating. So whatever that foundation is, whether it's your culture, your numbers, your KPIs, profitability where it needs to be, um, recruiting efforts, marketing efforts. So when we went into different markets, we had a set plan of what the leadership was going to look like, when we were going to start advertising, when we were going to make changes, certain changes, um, as simple as uniform companies to software companies. Uh, it, we had a 180-day plan for, from the start, and we tried to execute on it. Uh, we did for the most part. I think to Ryan's point is maybe there's not a key process that's to have a process. Um, a written process, whatever that process is. Not my strength, by the way. I'm a big idea, crazy guy. But my business partner is, did you write it down? No, can you help me? <laughs> um, so is to have an actual process somebody can follow that's written down, it's not out of the back of your head. We have processes for everything. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I'm very anal, I'm an engineer, but it's the processes. The other thing is, and I've, I've used this term for a very long time, you gotta know your numbers cold. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking here financial numbers. And you've got to have the proper you know, back office before you get too big, and you've got to have enough working capital. Uh, it's a lot of things. It's a different toolbox, but uh, very important. I'm, I'm really shocked that you aren't talking right now. Seven centers of management attention. <laughs> Processes is kind of your thing. Well, okay. You're trying to be humble. What, tell me what the question was again. 
<laughs> That's why. Were you thinking about elevator operators and what was, leadership? Or? <laughs> I think I got it. I just want to make sure I got it. What are some key processes to scale my business? Oh, well, you have to have a lead generation process, a lead conversion process, and a client fulfillment process, a leadership process, a management process, a money process, and a marketing process. Seven centers management tension. But really, you know, it comes down to you, you got to have a team, a management team that you can deploy into a new market armed with those processes, right? They got to be trained and be able to execute, but you send them out with those processes and say, this is our playbook, let's go, and a plan. And they can evolve. Yeah. You guys ever had, any of you ever used any of your own staff to go in and create the documented processes for you? Yeah. yeah Get them involved in creating your own processes, take the workload off of, you know, you or maybe some, like have some of your own team create the processes so that way they're all. Yeah, my sales uh, warehouse and install managers are actually working on it as we speak. Um, a, a new process that we're uh, developing from the sales to install ha handover. Um, and I gave it to them completely. I went, you guys are doing this every day. You, you figure it out, write it down. When I get back from St. Louis, we'll review it. You know, we've done a lot in the past, though, to that point, to build the processes, is, is go to your local universities and get some interns. Sometimes they're paid, sometimes they're not. They're not paid a lot, but they're, they're very excited. They got new skills. They want to try it out. You let them read the E-Myth book or the Traction book so they understand what they're working on, and you start pointing them at systems, and they'll interview your staff and see how things work, start documenting it, refining it, and you come away with a system, you know, so you have a systems team inside your business. So that's how I started developing all the systems, and then over time, those people kind of became our, uh, you know, our business systems team. And, and uh, you know, my original assistant years ago is now our VP of business, uh, business systems, and she leads those teams as we continue to develop and evolve our systems and, and build our, our manual, if you will. But, you know, I, it's, it's interesting to me, I've told that to many, many contractors over the years, and, it, and how it's such, such an underutilized resource. Go to your university and have those kids come around and do all kinds of tasks for you to help you grow. Maybe use the journalism majors that write well. Yeah, well, you, you get 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 the whole studies. You get the finance guy, the accounting guy, the marketing guy. The yeah, Chris, you had obviously be, having been in the military. I'm sure processes is something that's part of your every single day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's your take on this? You know, the only thing I'd add that hasn't been said. I agree, process is critical. I would say that the other piece I would add is making sure your team understands the why. Uh, behind the process because I really think that helps with embracing it and doing it consistently. If I just come and say everybody's got to do it this way because that's the best, uh, I'm not going to get the same commitment to that process if they, versus if they understand why they're doing this and the, the second, third, and fourth order effects of doing that process the right way. And, I, and I'll call process, processes the basics. Uh, how you do the daily call board and manage capacity, the basics. How we interact in customers' homes with the services, the basics. And we gotta be brilliant in the basics. And if we get too caught up in all the exciting things that come with growth and lose sight of the basics, that's when you see margins erode and bad things happen. 
Um, so never losing sight of those processes. And, and the last thing I'll say is it's a lot easier. I wish I would have done that six years ago, been as intentional about process versus trying to do it later in your journey, because uh, it only gets harder if you yeah. try and do it later. And I, if, if you're sitting there saying, ah, oh, we're, we're a small enough organization, I work so close with everyone, I don't need this process or that level of structure, I would say do it anyway. It's a lot easier just to do it now uh, versus trying to do it when you do need it and it's a little too late and it becomes a change management problem. Yeah, and to that point, if you haven't done it, you gotta watch the movie The Founder. And it's about McDonald's, right? Ray Kroc. And don't get too consumed with Ray, Ray's antics, but there's one piece in the movie that you gotta see and you gotta understand this. That before the McDonald's brothers really even opened a store, they had a building and they drew the floor plan of the building on the tennis court at the high school. And then they drew where the fryers went, where the stove went, where the Coke machine went, all the stuff and then they practiced with their team to see what the best flow was, and they raced it, and they, and they worked it, worked it until they got it down before they even opened. Well, what do we do? We like, well, let's get a van and get it lettered up and get some business cards and go, right? So, you know, take, take, a, take a page out of the playbook of the, the, the greatest restaurant that's ever been created, the business system that's ever been created, and start that way. So you're not trying to fly the airplane and, and build it as you go, right? And I've done that, too. And be, be pliable, be yeah. flexible, be ready to, to move. A, you know, Ken's done this, you know, seven centers, we, however many offices you have, we don't, we've done it three times now, and each one we learn. And there's something that we tried a second time, and, you know, it, it crapped the bed. So I just be ready to take that process, either toss it or revise it, um, don't be rigid to whatever you did one time, even if it worked, now you have to evaluate. If it worked in one place, not the other, why is that? So the rigid nature of what some of us like with processes, I understand and I'm all for a process. Just make sure that just because it worked once that you're evaluating whether that's a long-term solution to do, if you can repeat that in multiple locations. I was just gonna add that when I was between companies, uh, after we sold our first company, I did some consulting around the United States. And I know we're talking processes here, but I went into companies and I'd say, well, the first thing I want to see is I want to see a copy of your organization chart. I'll bet you 75% of those companies looked at me like a deer, what, deer in a headlight or something. They had no organization chart. And then I'd go interview their people and I'd say, but Sam, so who do, you, who do you report to? You know, I'm not really sure. I've, I've, I've wondered that for a long time. So these are the things that are really such basics to me. And then of course, on the financial side is budgeting, and I'm just big on budgeting. We develop a plan, we measure it every month, and uh, it, it's a kind of a game to be able to say, okay, we're behind budget, we're over budget, we're right on, yeah. Okay, anybody else, we good? Um, so this kind of segues into the next question. We haven't really, um, oh, and by the way, if you have a, if you have a question and you haven't figured out the app, totally okay. Uh, Sarah has a, a handheld microphone that we can also um, carry on and hand to one of you. I can't really see if your hand's up unless you're up front, so you might just have to yell my name out <laughs> or just say, I got a question. We are. Yep, that's where we're headed right now. <laughs> so um, the I'm question was... Ask that same question. The question was, are we going to cover private equity? <laughs> yes. So that's where we're headed right now. So, is this where I leave the stage, Chris? <laughs> no, 
So actually, it's great that you're here because there's a lot of, alt I mean, there's private equity is an option, but there's lots of options. You've got mergers, you have the evergreen model, there's you know, different ways to scale and grow these businesses, and there's a lot of success up here that have done those things. So the hope is we take this last you know, little chunk and we start to, to dig into those things. But um, I think we had 18 of our, of our customers uh, acquired in the last year and a half. So it's no, obviously it's super clear in the last really two years it's become incredibly uh, saturated in the M&A market. And there's lots of amazing things happen. There's lots of great multiples that we're seeing. Um, but there's also some truths and some myths and all this stuff too. So my hope is we can uncover some of those things. And really it's just finding out what model works best for you and whatever your exit strategy is. Because at the end of the day, that's, that's what matters is what do you want from, from this? Are you looking to make a, a total exit? Are you looking to roll equity? What does rolling equity even mean? There's just lots of options. So, um, But one of the questions that was submitted is, what are the key things companies look for to increase the valuation of the business? Who wants to hit that one? Management team, organic growth, use of technology. So we talked about a little bit about maintenance agreements and processes. Are those maintenance agreements is a factor in the negotiation piece of your? What did I say? Of your? <laughs> what did I just say? So so so. How about the processes? Management team, processes. organic growth. Yeah, that helps, it helps. So you can't give any more little details on this. So you can give up all the Ken Goodrich secrets that you want to. I mean, what, do, what, what, what am I missing? <laughs> Management team, what, am I, what, would you, what detail would you like, sir? So how about this? Let's switch gears. So when people talk <laughs> about rolling equity, I don't, let's not assume that everybody understands what the rolling equity piece, what does that mean? So, you know, so, so when, you, when you enter into an agreement whereby you, you sell a piece of your operation to a private equity or an outside investor, you're going to retain some shares, right, of the business. You're not selling, in, in many cases, you don't sell all of the shares, you sell part of the shares. Generally, it's more than 50%, so they have a controlling interest, but sometimes it doesn't have to be. Just understand when, it, when it's not a controlling interest, They'll find a way to control the situation via contract. But that said, you know you're selling a, you're selling your shares. So your question is, you know, I'm going to take those shares and I'm going to sell all the shares, or I'm going to sell some of the shares and keep some shares in and enjoy the growth of the the, the uh, value of those shares with my newfound uh, monetary and intellectual capital that's been injected into the business. Does that make sense? Sure. So, you know, in, in, in most people, you know, the private equity world, a, a, a good outcome is a double, is a double of the value of the equity. A great outcome is a, I mean, they'll kiss you if you do a three. There's lots of fives. And then recently in our space, just because of the, uh, you know, because the feeding frenzy, you know, there's, there's cases where they're 15 and 20 times uh, uh, multiple of the equity when you do your rollover. So it's, you're just keeping shares of your stock and you're riding the, uh, the growth. Right. And back to the original question, I, management team, number one, uh, <laughs> got to have existing leadership in place it is. It's what private equity is looking for, at least in our... We are a little different. We we are a minority. We own the majority still. Uh, we have a minority 
private equity partner, and they are really a business partner meant to help with acquisitions more than liquidity of the business. But we are looking for leadership, number one. We do find maintenance agreements to be important, but leadership, leadership, if we have to go in there and run it from the ground up, it's essentially a startup to us, and that is not attractive. Yeah. I think it's very interesting, though, that you know you and a franchise do have a uh, a private equity partner too. That's a whole interesting concept. But you know, you see these McDonald's stores, these operators that have 250 stores, and they sell them as a package. That doesn't seem to be a a barrier to to monetizing your business, right? It is a uh, low hanging fruit for us. Um, as I think everybody in this room has an opinion on a franchise system, uh, it is a hindrance, especially to private equity groups. It, it is a small knock um, as they look to acquire, if they already have a, a Gettle type company and they look to acquire a franchise business, um, it's negative to their uh, valuation of the business. For us, we are in the system, we have private equity money ready to take care of those owners that have no exit strategy, one that um, is ready to get out, but their business is worth nothing or because either of what they've done with it or because of the franchise system. So it, it is a golden opportunity for us and that, that is why the private equity side came in from a minority interest to assist us. How long do you think the window's open for? I mean, the window's wide open, it's been open. What's your take on that? I, I guess still one of them crashes and burns, I guess. But. Um, I, you know, again, you know, we have a great, we have a great industry and uh, it, it's, you know, with, with all kinds of things, it continues to grow. Uh, you know, these, these, I've learned a lot in this journey because I've done this six times, but, you know, these guys, the way they look at it, you know, the industry growth is good and they see that with some adding a, a, a like I said earlier, some monetary and intellectual capital to business, they can outgrow the industry that grows about 4% a year right now, and they can outgrow that, which means they're taking market share, which means all kinds of great financial things for them. So I think the space is very interesting to them. I mean, let's face it, we all understand this is a great business. Where else can you go sell something at, I don't know, 10 o'clock in the morning for 10,000 bucks, do the job, and the money's in the bank today. And make a 50% margin. You know, there's not a lot. So they love the space. What's driving a lot of this, though, is interest rates, obviously, because the whole private equity world in general in every industry is, is on fire. There's so much money out there, and interest rates are so low, it makes everything so compelling that that's driving it. So I think as interest rates continue to, you know, continue to climb this year uh, and the inflation things, we'll see some slow. And then, you know, like Lee and I experienced, I don't know about you guys yet, but you, Lee and I experienced the first consolidation in the mid-90s. And that was a case, from my vantage point, that was a case where they all hit the wall, you know? They were buying, but they didn't really understand they had to operate the damn things <laughs> once they bought them, right? So that was the wall they hit, and so that's what stopped the consolidation then. I think these guys, are coming out of a different elk, uh, mainly because the technology is advanced. So now we have, we have software we can run the business with. They have metrics. Uh, there's, there's groups like this and all the other groups where they can get talent. It's just a different formula. I think that the environment today is much better uh, to see 
long-term private equity or, or outside investment coming into our industry than certainly it was back in the mid-90s. I, I would say, too, that we are in an industry where, at least today, the consumers need us. There's nothing like indoor comfort. Uh, I think that going back to the, to the 90s when we sold, uh, the whole intent was to find some leaders at the top to take this thing public. It was all about an IPO. And that went out of favor when the first one sort of crashed and burned. So I think there's been a lot of learning. I know my particular you know, transaction, they ended up coming back to us and said, would you like to take your business back? They ran it in the ground because they brought in a manager and, and they, they said, and of course at that point we decided we're gonna move on and, and rebuild. But I offered them 14,000 cash for the business. And they said, are you sitting down? And I said, yes. Uh, we're, gonna, we're prepared to offer you 187,000 to take it back. And I said, where'd you get that number? Oh, off the balance sheet. And I knew that was hokey pokey. So I said, I'll tell you what, you mean this is going to be a stock transaction? And I said, that's not going to work. I said, I'll give you a counteroffer. You tell your client they got 30 days to get out of my building. And they did. And we started over 19 years ago. And we just took right off and zoomed. But this is a different play. It's just different. Now, Chris, you use the uh, old evergreen strategy. You want to explain what that is? Yeah, we've just taken a different approach. I, first, I'll say I, I think it's great what private equity is doing. Uh, and, you know, I, the decision to, to partner or not is a very personal one, right? Founders have to make that decision for, theirself, uh, for themselves and for their families or, or whatever their circumstances. Our, our quick story is our dad uh, made the decision six years ago that we wanted to remain a, a family-owned enterprise and we wanted to be very intentional around how purpose showed up in our business and what our values were. That's good. Um, and so we, we've stayed this course with uh, uh, private ownership. And a quick note on that, at the time, and just in the spirit of transparency, because I think it makes this valuable, he, we had bought a business from him in 2016 that was doing about a million dollars of EBITDA. Uh, and at that time, it probably could have got 8x, you know, $8 million or so. Uh, last year, we shot past 10 of EBITDA, right? Uh, and you look at what that could fetch on the marketplace today. So with private, purpose-driven ownership in the Evergreen model, uh, doing some quick math, I, I, in that six-year hold period, I 20x'd the cash return, right? Yeah. Uh, and so there is a path there where value creation can be really incredible, uh, and you can take a different view of, of how you uh, invest in your people and in your business because you're no longer looking, making investment decisions that are based on a three- or five- or seven-year hold period. Uh, you're making investment decisions that are about value maximization over decades. Uh, and I think about where we can be in another five years or ten years. We're on our... Uh, last year was our sixth consecutive year of over 30% organic growth, and this year, year-to-date, 48% organically, and it's accelerating. Uh, and so I think when you get the right ingredients in a purpose-driven, values-based business with family ownership and stewardship, there's a real compelling path for value creation there. And you're here and also Nashville, right? That's correct, yeah. Wait, let, let me clarify. So you're, this year you're growing at, you're, you're at 40% organic? 48, yeah. 48? I just wanted my management team to hear that. Right. <laughs> In a market like St. Louis, it's not growing. Yeah. Dirty old St. I mean, St. Louis. And Brian, you did the merger model, right? We were talking about that a little bit last night. Yeah. How did that pan out? Like, what's, uh, how's it's that? It's going really well. I mean, then the goal was um, we have big private equity companies in our market and number one, but number two. So they were big and 
Um, we had some private equity sniffing around us, me and my now partner, but it was a competitor at the time that I was friends with. Um, and we decided if we were gonna be able to compete, we had to reach a critical mass, so to speak, that um, we couldn't do separately or it would take more time to do separately. Um, so by merging together, putting our skill sets together, we were able to get a fully established management team. We have a lot of maintenance contracts. We were able to work on processes, things we was, would have been much more challenging to do with uh, the separate smaller sizes that we had. Um, so that was able to get us to a critical mass and we've had 40% organic growth um, since the merger. Um, and uh, some small acquisitions as well to get talent more so than anything. Um, because uh, somebody asked earlier, how do, you, how do you recruit talent? You can just buy it. Uh, <laughs> Accu-hire. <laughs> Got it. Um, there's a question came up that says, how important is chemistry in any deal? I mean, I, I'll, I'm gonna just chime in for a minute. Because I have friendships with a lot of the private equity, or guys who have raised private equity and have play in that game, um, and a lot of contractors that come to me, whether it be from the customers of ours or friends of ours or listen to the podcasts and they'll ask me questions on who should I go to, um, who should be the ones I go to. And I can kind of get an idea based on like what they tell me that they want because there's lots of options. Chemistry is incredibly important um, to make sure that whomever you're choosing, you, you mesh well with, you feel good about, like you feel like, because obviously you want to try and retain as many folks as you possibly can in that particular. So there's just a lot of, I think, factors go into kind of, Chris, to your point is whatever your exit plan is, is your exit plan. Like it's, it's different. You got a lot of options, but if you are going to go that private equity route, there is a lot of options. Just make sure you find the right ones that fit like your culture of your business. That's going to kind of get behind you and your beliefs and your plan and support it instead of pick it apart. My two cents. You, you know, uh, I talk to a lot of guys in the industry, and, and, I, and I, you know, I sense a lot of fear in this whole private equity thing, but it's not a death sentence. You know, you, you, you build a business, you build an asset, and then you can continue to own the asset and let it lay the golden eggs, or you can say, I think that right now the market has driven up the value and I can take some chips off the table, I can take it off. And then you go do it again. I mean, it's not like you, you sell it and you can't go do it again. Don't equate the struggle it took to get from here to there as you'll have to do that again because you'll, you'll be armed with, you know, experience and capital. And that, you know, we've done it six times. We just, we, we build the asset, the market's right, we sell the asset, we live out any obligations we have there, we look for our new play, we do it again. But, now armed with more capital and more knowledge to take it to the next level. Mm -hmm. That's the game that we've played. So there's all kinds of ways to play owning your own business, right? And that's just one of the ways. You don't liken it to own a, owning a piece of real estate that you build up and build its highest, best use, and then you move it up and you move it up and you move it up. That's how I've always looked at it. Got it. Um, you kind of were talking about the 90s, and it makes me think about the blue dot days and all that stuff, and the question that was submitted was, um, the last time we saw private equity boom, um, like it is now, it was followed by a crash. Um, and some owners were able to buy their um, companies back. Um, but do you expect the history to repeat itself? This is something I actually get asked often that I hear. I know you guys have to hear the same thing, but like, it's gotta happen, right? 
It's going to happen. I hope so. <laughs> but, but the difference in the 90s was that was they were all public companies and the demand of a public company is completely different than private equity. In the public markets, you know, you better be increasing stock price or your stock value goes down and it's, you know, quarter by quarter by quarter. And so many great businesses were ruined because of the pressure of the stock price. Right. And, and that condition doesn't exist now in the private equity th thing. You know, they have their motives and they want to earn, you know, they want to grow the value of the company, but it's not, uh, you know, from outside influences that are driving the, the perceived value of the company up or down. So that's the real difference here. And that was the big struggle with uh, the 90s consolidation is they were public companies. And the word ever is, if you don't know, is a long time. So is it ever going to crash? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Roy Williams, the marketing genius, talks about everything is a pendulum. They swing, and it is a cycle. So will it go down at some point? Yes. The question I think everybody in this room is asking is when? Um, and is it in the immediate future or near future? And that is the question I think we're trying to figure right. out yep. as a group. I mean, it's yep. destined to, at some point, over the pendulum typically is somewhere in a 40 to 60 year cycle. So if, if that's where you're looking, yes, it's definitely going to crash. Now the question is, is it in the next one, three, five, ten years? I'm banking on some of these smaller roll-ups. You know, these, there's a lot of newfound private equity groups coming out of the woodwork to get to get their piece of this deal, right? Get a piece of this market. And, uh, you know, they don't, they just, they're new, they don't have a lot of experience, they don't have the management expertise to pull it together, so they've assembled a bunch of small businesses and it's gonna be a rudderless ship. I know exactly what's gonna happen, I've been here and I've seen it. And so what I'm waiting for is, I'm gonna pick up some of those smaller groups as they start to fall, fall out of favor. That's how we're gonna scale is you know, picking up some of that failed PE situations, right? When you say smaller group, give me a rough idea of like volume size of a smaller group since? Well, I mean, in terms more of the PE group that put them together, there's a lot of guys that kind of form their own little PE groups, got some outside capital, got some debt, and they, and they really have not had a track record of building companies and growing them, or they have, you know, very minor experience with them. Those are the ones that I got my eye on, for instance, that I know are gonna struggle. Because they have no real true leadership, they have no real true plan, they're just trying to capitalize on the market, like house flippers, I'd call them. Yep. You follow me? Yep, got it. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm gonna shift gears again for just a second, since I think we got about uh, 17 minutes or so left, and then I'll get back to some more M&A questions. Um, one of the questions was, where can I get a pair of those badass orange shoes? So whoever submitted that, thank you. Um, <laughs> Nike. <clears throat> That's where I got them. Um, okay. The last, uh, let's see, how important is it to build core values for employees and implement performance pay? Let me read that again. How important is it to build core values for employees and implement performance pay? Interesting. I think they're... Two different questions. Core values are yeah. fundamental. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Core values are extremely fundamental to yeah. it, 
think about it, your own family unit. You have core values within your family unit that, that guide yeah. what you do. So core values, I mean, I, I think everybody up here hopefully agrees, is very fundamental. Now, performance pay, we could have a discussion on, but uh, core values, it's kind of a no-brainer. No performance pay, we all have opinions, and I'll yield. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, people need incentives, but I'll yield to others on performance pay. Anybody else? I'll yield to nobody. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I agree with what you say. You know, the, the uh, core values are just essential part of Anything. your management system, right? Mm -hmm. It's an essential part, your core values. So, um, yes, you have to have those. And, and they don't have to be, you don't have to spend a lot of time on it. Just lay them out there and say, this is how we, this is how we conduct ourselves here. And then performance pay, I mean, it has its place. It has its problems, it has its place. And I think that, uh, you know, in our particular case, we've got all kinds of different pay arrangements that go with, with different roles and even different personalities too. So um, I wouldn't rule it out, but just understand that performance pay, certainly as it relates more to the sales side of things, can create some challenges for you. So you have to be a, have a governor on that. I would add on the, the purpose and value stuff. I, I agree with everything that was said, but I would, I would add to it and say, uh, how does it show up in your business beyond just being a pretty image on a wall, right? And I think, how do you equip your leaders to make sure that the way they're interacting with your team is reinforcing those values or that purpose and that there's that common shared language? Because one thing I've learned is that the bigger we've gotten and when we're adding as many people as we are, it's really quickly to have your culture become diluted if you're not very intentional about how those things are showing up in your business. And, Everybody's business here has a culture, whether or not it's a byproduct of, of something that just happened along the way or whether or not it's something you're very intentional about creating, uh, that's up to you. And, and I think purpose and values are a way to be very intentional about the way you're creating that culture. Right. Lee? We, we are not on performance pay, and I agree with that. I'm reading what Ken is saying about there's pros and cons, really. But uh, our people have the expectation of completing jobs in a certain amount of time. We measure, we track, we communicate, and we look at trends. We look at a lot of KPIs on a trending rolling 12 or whatever, so we know which, you know, where we're headed. Uh, direct labor costs, as an example, we watch that by department, by what we do, and uh, we feel that you know, it works for us. I'll say two things. One, we talk about that pendulum or cycles, right? I think Newcomp was a very big component piece of the industry, you know, early 2000s. And it's something that I think a lot of people are starting to move away from for all the reasons Ken mentioned. There are some pros and cons, and maybe the cons outweigh the pros. Um, but back to what Lee was also saying, to the culture, it comes to your leadership. And if you're going to hold people accountable, Lee was talking about KPIs and tracking, if you have the right culture, you have those values, and your leadership team buys into them, they will then have that trickle down. It doesn't have to be a pay grade holding over somebody's head to make that magic happen. Hey Chris, one last thing I'll add to is in our business between Nashville and St. Louis, very two, very complete opposite markets in terms of how, how our, right. our professionals right. are compensated. Uh, and you can be very successful in both. I would say this is a very market by market decision, but for systems that are very hourly driven, I think it's really important that the, the coaching conversations, accountability, one-on-ones are there to reinforce the, the expectations. Uh, otherwise, it's easy for, with high hourly and no variable component, it's easy for bad results to follow if there's not good coaching and accountability. That's good. Yeah, you just gave me a great idea. 
<laughs> so all, uh, You're what you just said is worth my whole trip. Thank you. What's your great idea, Ken? <laughs> Keeping it to myself. Listen, <laughs> I, went to, I went to a seminar one time, and I was always, you know, I, this whole culture thing was a miss for me because I wasn't raised like huggy, kissy, you know, with my dad working on the air conditioners and stuff. It just really wasn't a thing. That, and that was my thought when people keep talking about culture. So I, I go to a Richard Kiyosaki, I think that's how you pronounce his name, the oh, Rich, yeah. dad, Rich Dad, Poor Dad guy, and he started talking about culture. And he said that culture, he was, he's a Marine, and he said, when I was, when I was out looking for you know, where, what service I wanted to go into, I went to the Air Force, I went to the Navy, and, and he said he went to the Marines, and when, when the, uh, the recruiter walked in, he said, gentlemen, make no, <clears throat> gentlemen, make sure you clearly understand that. We are the Marines, and we kill people. And he said, <laughs> I, he had me right then. He said, I joined the Marines, right? And he said, that's a culture, right? And he described a culture as a business system of Killing. Here's a document that says, here's how we're going to conduct ourselves here, right? Now I got that. But when you go around and you talk about culture and, and everybody's, I don't even know how to describe it, but it, it, that made sense to me. Culture is a business system on how we're going to conduct ourselves here. Yeah, and he was talking about um, documenting that. Remember, like he said, document your culture, like create a process for your culture. Yeah, yeah. I think sometimes too, Ken, to your point, we've talked about this, people use culture as an excuse to have bad results. I know. Uh, that's and like, great, yeah. um, oh, we take care of people, that's why we have bad financial results. I think culture should be the reason you have phenomenal results. I, I don't view it as something that should be. A, yeah, to your point, yeah. we, we bought a company a few years ago and, and the guy was a big culture guy. Now, that's all we talked about culture. I wasn't really sure what he was talking about. And he said, and I started kind of pressing him a little bit about his numbers. He said, well, Ken, you know, I, I run the culture here, and I'm a visionary. And I said, maybe you should envision some profit. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing on culture is live your culture. To your point, Chris, don't have it be a poster on the wall that is not how you or your leadership team right. act. You actually have to do what you say you're going to do. Okay, we got about five minutes left, so I'm going to ask one more question from this app, and then I'm going to open, give the opportunity again if somebody out there wants to ask a question, because um, there's still a bunch of questions on this um, that have been submitted, um, and this is around mistakes. So, I mean, something that I've tried to learn in growing our business was I, I got the luxury of working with a guy named Gary Vaynerchuk the last three years, and trying to find out from his business on what mistakes they had made so I can bypass those mistakes. Well, you have that opportunity here as well to figure out what are some of those mistakes that maybe you can bypass too in, in a lot of different ways, a lot of different types of companies. But um, I'll ask this of each of you guys. What is, uh, what's the, the biggest mistake that you guys learned from on your journey? Maybe Lee will start with you and let's go down the line. The biggest mistake? Biggest mistake that you've made maybe in business that you were able to learn from or that we can make somebody else aware of who might be, you know, close to that same situation. Oh. Oh. Well, I was involved with Blue Dot and it wasn't my decision, <laughs> but I, I was living in a, in a two and a half year window where 
I was seeing mistakes coming down from the corporate leadership on things from A to Z. Uh, it was all about the, not, not all about the numbers, but frankly, they were a bunch of lies. And that, that was totally against us. But as far as really mistakes, no, I, I have to say, I don't think we've made very many mistakes, except perhaps we focused more on uh, profitability than on real growth. Yep. Uh, we know typically what contractors profit, if they're profitable. Uh, we're way off, you know, north of 20% net, and we've been that way from year to year to year. And I've always said it's not how much you sell, it's how much you make. Right. But I think we could have probably been more aggressive. And we've been growing now at about 30% per year. Uh, but we've just got a great team taking care of our people, great reputation. So you're focused on profit. I can't really think of one particular mistake that we made. Maybe it's because you learned some of, from some of those from those blue dot days well, on what not to do. I, I can tell you that the, at the first timers session that we had, I, I did tell the story that I worked for 11 years for a company that never made a profit. But I was paid well. And when I attended my very first ACCA annual conference, I met a guy, a complete stranger of a cup of coffee. And he said to me, uh, well, tell me about your business. I said, well, we're doing about $9 million a year. We do residential, commercial, da 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 da, -da. And he says, whoa, well, that's big. He says, we do $7 million. Now, this is a long time ago. And he, he said, how many employees do you have? And I said, well, right now we have 178. And he looked at me and said, you're not making any money. Well, I didn't own the company. I went back and I told the owner that we got big problems here. We've got way too many people. We didn't have any tracking and we didn't have any. And uh, he said, no, that's not our problem. We don't have too many people. And I left. ACCA is what started me and my mixed group to learn you can make very, very serious money in this business. So yeah. I learned from others. I didn't learn this at an engineering school. I learned it from other successful contractors. Yeah, peer groups are important. Obviously, if you're in a peer group, for sure do that. At least go do shop visits so you can learn a ton that way. More hands-on. Chris, how about you? Yeah, I'll share the, the biggest mistake I almost made. It was six years ago when I was stepping into the business. I, I thought I was pretty smart. I just left the Marines and, and uh, used the GI Bill, went to business school, and I got my degree in, in hand and thought I knew what I was doing. And I talked, I was talking to an affinity group, and, and I almost made the decision to say, well, I don't need to learn from them. I'm going to go do this myself and figure it out on my own. And that would have been the biggest mistake of my life had I not mm -hmm. recognized that there's so much, the answer's in the room. There's so many people that have learned the hard lessons, gone before, paved the road, figured out the process. Uh, and to this day, I just went out and visited Ken's shop uh, in Las Vegas maybe a year or two ago. And across the country, leaders on our team are engaging with the leaders in this industry. This industry is really unique uh, in that people are really generally op willing to open their doors, yeah, and invite right. people in and let them Good. in across the country. And we take full advantage of that. And I would say, set your ego aside and, and do the same. When you're solving a problem, someone else has figured it out. Don't reinvent the wheel. Okay, G, you're up. Okay, mistakes. I don't know, man, I made so many fucking, I made so many mistakes. <laughs> there was one. I just made a mistake right now. That was gonna be the first one. I mean, uh, I think every mis the, the majority of mistakes, the key mistakes I've made that's been the most challenging have to do with people and management. And that's why we went back cut to the management system. But you know, it's, I, I watch it, I watch, I remember what I did and I watch what, what a lot of guys do is, you know, they take their best tech and they make them the service manager. <laughs> and now they got a bad service manager and, and, a, and no good techs. They take their best sales guy and they make them the 
sales manager, manager and they got no sales and they got an expensive sales manager. You know, that's really, that right there has been the struggle that I've seen most contractors do and not understanding that managing people is a system and you got to get this, you have to get the education and the system in place to do that properly before you can move people forward. I've stepped on that line. <laughs> um, right. Uh, yeah, I'm very similar to Chris that I walked in the business, oh, I've been doing it 13 years and oh, I knew it all. I was ready to show everybody you know, what, what I knew and end up I didn't know uh, anything. Um, and But my single biggest one is from leadership, very similar to what Ken was saying. Uh, I used to try and lead people the way I wanted to be led. And if you know anything about uh, college basketball, there was a coach named Bobby Knight. Bobby Knight's a grab-you-by-your-throat kind of guy. That motivates me. So though I didn't grab people by their throat, I tried the same motivational tactics with the entire team. And you find um, revolutions, revolts. Teams say, no, thank you. Yep. And you find yourself really having to uh, look in the mirror and figure out what, what the hell was going on and, and figure it out. Um, you know, leadership style, you have to lead people, not necessarily the way they want to be led, but the way that's going to connect with them. And it's something that has been a personal journey. Um, I can't say that's a company journey. A personal journey of mine is to figure out how to lead each and every person. Um, and now doing it across multiple states, it's a whole other uh, game changer that I'm still trying to figure out. Uh, mistakes I would echo is promoting people to failure. Um, this industry's been awesome at that for a long time. Take a good installer, turn them into a bad service tech, take the bad service tech, make a more service manager. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, that's definitely one. Uh, coming up with an idea and not having a process. And that's been, always been a, a weakness of mine. Um, it's why the merger uh, of my two, our two companies was good for me, because my partner is very process-driven, um, maybe a little bit too much. So I can, I can <laughs> cage some a little bit, too. Um, so if, if you have an idea and it doesn't work and you didn't have a process, it doesn't mean the idea was bad. It meant you didn't have the right process. Uh, and then to your point, uh, leadership, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I'm not really a yeller screamer. I had a guy that was acting up the other week, and I brought him in, and I, I yelled and screamed. And he's, he's been great for three weeks now. Um, three weeks. But I tried talking to him reasonably several times, and that didn't work. Um, that's what he needed. So you, know, you had to adjust to the people you're working with. Got it. And let me, I know we're out of time, but let me add this one thing, this point. I think it's very important that everybody need to understand as, you know, as the CEO or president or whatever you want to call yourself, as the major shareholder of your business, the leader, you have to understand your shortcomings too. Yep. You know, at a certain point, you may say, look, I can't lead the team any further from here, and I, it will require me to, to do some self-reflection and say, I got to gut check and put somebody guy between a guy between or a, or a person between myself and the and the business to help it move forward i mean you're still the major shareholder sounds like that's a great life have somebody else go through all the challenges and drive the business forward and send you checks hope it works out that way but you know even for me you know we're approaching 200 million dollar business and, I'm, and and i'm even really contemplating you know, at what point am I going to start hitting my Peter principle? So everybody here that owns a company has to really clearly think about that. What's your shortcomings and what, what 
skill set do you need to put inside the enterprise to make sure that you are not the impediment to the growth? That's good. Yeah, that's yep. a good point. That's good. Well, um, yeah, we're, we're out of time. Um, listen, uh, I'm grateful for each of you. Um, I, I've gotten to know all of you. I've some, some of you I've worked with for a little bit now. Um, and what I love about everybody that's sitting on the stage is really their willingness to kind of help you. Um, so I would encourage you uh, to find these guys and talk to them one-on-one -on -one if you need to. That's why they're here. They're here to help serve you. Um, so step up. Take advantage. There is no stupid there is no stupid question. Ken will bust your chops probably a little bit, but then he'll go right into helping you and giving you some good answers. And what, let me say one last thing. <laughs> 1990, 1990, I'm about ready to shut the doors. And I had like 800 bucks. And I'm going through a trade magazine. I see the ACCA convention starts tomorrow in San Antonio. I'm like, well... I gotta try something. So I take the 800 bucks, I, I don't know how much it was, but, and I take off and I go to San Antonio. And I mean, I'm literally, I don't know how I'm gonna make payroll when I get back. And I, I got in a group like this, sat by a couple guys, we start talking, you know, you know, we start sharing ideas, I tell them my situation, some guys help me out, they point me in the right direction, I spend the whole three days with them, and you know, I got a newfound confidence you know, a new felt, I was energized about the business and I went back and I started implementing and I started connecting with all these people in ACCA. And, uh, and that's how I kind of got through my challenge and learned about the business and connected with others in the industry and helped build everything I've built over the years. But it was out of that one ad and innovation that got me to go to the ACCA convention in 1990. So those, those of you in the group that find yourself not in a place where you want to be, you're in the right place. That's good. And get in an ACCA mix group. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the way to go. Networking. Great. How was it? Can we give everybody these guys a round of applause, please? All right, that concludes this one. And again, like I said, I would encourage you, I mean, find any of these guys afterwards, talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. I don't think you're leaving until, what, tomorrow? So... Take advantage of it. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much again for listening to this podcast week after week. We are extremely grateful. Again, the whole purpose of this podcast is to give back to the home services industry that we love so much, whether you're a rhino or not. We really, really appreciate all the subscribers. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please go in and subscribe and you'll get all the episodes sent to you automatically weekly. Also, we have really enjoyed your feedback. Uh, it's so meaningful for us when we get to read the nice comments that you guys put. So keep doing that. And if you don't know how to do it, here's what you got to do. You search for To The Point Home Services on Apple Podcasts. You click on our profile, scroll all the way down to the bottom and hit write a review and be honest and share your story and how the podcast has impacted you and your business. Thanks again from the bottom of our hearts at To The Point Home Services Podcast. We appreciate you.